This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. For more books from Gary North that are free and downloadable on PDF format, please visit GaryNorth.com slash freebooks. The title of this book is Millennialism and Social Theory, published by Institute for Christian Economics, copyright Gary North, 1990. Chapter 5, The Society of the Future. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered, nor come into mind. But be ye glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem a rejoicing, and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem, and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. For the child shall die an hundred years old, but the sinner, being an hundred years old, shall be accursed. And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble. For they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring with them. Isaiah sixty-five seventeen to 23 Isaiah introduces this prophecy by saying that it refers to the new heaven and the new earth. The key question is this. Is this coming era historical or post-resurrection? The language of Isaiah is straightforward. An era is coming in history when the person who dies at age 100 will be considered as a child an indication of a major extension of man's lifespans. Also, sinners will be accounted accursed. This appears to be an application of Isaiah's prophecy of the millennial era's improved moral self-consciousness, when vile people will not be called liberal, and churls will not be called bountiful, Isaiah 32.5. In short, there will be a coming age in which covenantal wisdom is paralleled by long life, but it will still be an age of death and sin. This is the reason why the exercise of covenantal wisdom will be possible. It will still be possible to distinguish good from evil, long life from short life, cursings from blessings. No verse in the Bible makes it plainer that amillennial eschatology cannot possibly be true. Even if we take these words symbolically, i.e. as rhetoric, they still have to apply to history, for sinners will not be present in the post-resurrection world. They will not participate in the post-resurrection new heaven and new earth. Isaiah made it perfectly clear. He was talking about history. These words cannot possibly apply to the post-resurrection world. There will be a coming era of blessing in history. God's positive sanctions, his historical sanctions, on covenant keepers will bring victory to his earthly kingdom. It is quite understandable why Archibald Hughes an amillennial theologian, mentioned this passage in only two brief sentences in his book, A New Heaven and a New Earth. This passage refutes his eschatology. So much the worse for Isaiah, apparently. Herman Ritterboss is wiser still. He never even mentioned the verse in a book on the kingdom of God that is over 500 pages long. He compensates for this omission by citing hundreds of German liberal theologians, most of whom outlived their theories. One man, however, has accepted the challenge. We therefore need to examine his exegesis in detail to see whether the amillennial interpretation of Isaiah 65.20 can be sustained. Dr. Hokema's Heroic Failure Calvin Theological Seminary professor Anthony H. A. Hokema, now deceased, was honest about this passage's importance. Referring to Isaiah 65.20, he announced, we must admit that this is a difficult text to interpret. Not impossible, merely difficult. Then he attempts to escape the dilemma by denying that the text is to be taken literally. Quote, is Isaiah telling us here that there will be death on the new earth? In my judgment, this cannot be his meaning, in the light of what he said, just said in verse 19. No more shall be heard in it, the Jerusalem being described, the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. Can one imagine a death not accompanied by weeping? End quote. Well, quite frankly, yes, I can imagine it. There is a biblical text relating to this very problem, Leviticus twenty-one ten to 13 
the high priest was forbidden to mourn publicly after the death of a close relative. As a kingdom of priests, we should begin to strive to match this self-reliant, self-restraint. I think this could well become biblical etiquette in an era of millennial blessings for three reasons. First, the sting of death will be progressively reduced. People will not fear death so greatly as they do now. The transition from physical life to physical death will not be so familiar a threat during an era in which people live very long lives. Second, the cry of distress, verse 19, refers to personal spiritual pain, 2 Samuel 22.7, Psalm 18.6. This degree of pain need not be prevalent in an era of millennial blessings. Third, the covenantal passage from death to life in history will be made by a majority of those dwelling in Jerusalem, meaning God's church. The close relatives of those deceased who have made the transition into eternity will not be so devastated as they are today. This is already true today to some extent, Paul says, indicating that Christians have begun the transition in history to that coming millennial era of blessings, and then on to the post-resurrection world beyond. Quote, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. End quote. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 Paul also writes, But this I say, brethren, the time is short. It remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they had none, and they that weep as though they wept not, and they that rejoice as though they rejoice not, and they that buy as though they possess not, and they that use this world as not abusing it, for the fashion of this world passeth away. 1 Corinthians 7, 29-31 As we move in history toward a tears-free eternity, our behavior should reflect both our faith and our historical experience as victors. There will be a progressive drying up of tears as covenant history unfolds. Hokuma raises a legitimate question. What about weeping? He notes its absence. Verse 19. But because he is defending a particular eschatology, he wipes away the tears exegetically by wiping away history. This is strictly a tactical ploy. His view of a tears-free future beyond the grave does not come from the text or from normal principles of Old Testament interpretation. It comes from his amillennial interpretive scheme. He argues, in effect, that history and tears are ontologically inseparable. Any absence of tears, absolutely, has to mean the absence of history, with no exceptions. This is strict amillennial exegesis. The Prophet's Use of Language The question I raise in response to this is this. Would those who heard Isaiah's message have grasped this hypothetical ontological relationship, tears in history? Would they have had even the slightest inkling that Isaiah was talking exclusively about a death-free eternal state rather than history? Not if they had heard his previous reference to a world without tears. The context was historical and earthly. Quote, For thou hast made of a city an heap, of a defensed city a ruin, a palace of strangers to be no city. It shall never be built. Therefore shall the strong people glorify thee. The city of the terrible nations shall fear thee. For thou hast been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat, when the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. Thou shalt bring down the noise of strangers as the heat in a dry place, even the heat with the shadow of a cloud, the branch of the terrible ones shall be brought low. And in this mountain shall the Lord of hosts make unto all people a feast of fat things, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lees well refined. And he will destroy in this mountain the face of the covering cast over all people, and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death in victory, and the Lord will wipe all t away all tears from all faces." And the rebuke of his people shall he take away from off all the earth. For the Lord hath spoken it. And it shall be said in that day, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. For in this mountain shall the hand of the Lord rest. And Moab shall be trodden down under him, even as straw is trodden down for the dunghill. Isaiah 25, 2-10 that this message is filled with symbolic language ought to be admitted by all expositors. 
Marrow, wines, and fat sound like the ultimate nightmare of modern dietitians. Modern, sedentary, urban man who consumes far too many of these gastronomic delights would no doubt be wise to eat more skinless chicken and leafy green vegetables. Our positive blessings have become a potential curse to us if we lack willpower. Ours is a prosperous era in which era in which it is far more affordable for gluttons and drunkards to indulge their sins. But Isaiah's vision was magnificent to a people who did not eat meat very often because of its great expense and the absence of refrigeration. Yes, the prophets did use symbolic language. They even mixed in the language of post-judgment history with their historical visions. But so does the New Testament. Jesus announced this to his followers, quote, In the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. End quote, John 7.37 This language is symbolic, yet it is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 49.8-13. Revelation 7.16-17 is a passage dealing with church history, and it uses language similar to Jesus' announcement at the feast, but then adds hope regarding tears. Quote, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them unto living fountains of water. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Quote. Total fulfillment will come, of course, only after final judgment, but partial fulfillment comes in history. Or are we to deny the positive cultural blessings of Jesus' living water in history? Revelation 21.4 seems to refer exclusively to the post-resurrection world. Quote, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. End quote. Yet even here, there is some degree of fulfillment in history. What amillennialist expositors refuse to acknowledge is this. The transition from today's world to the post-resurrection world does not take place overnight. It takes place historically. So they remove all traces of history from prophetic messages of comprehensive victory and visible blessings. Expositors recognize that the Old Covenant's message was geared primarily to history, not to a world beyond the grave. When a prophet spoke of wiping away tears, his audience would not have imagined that he was talking exclusively about the post-resurrection world, where the problem of tears obviously will not be an issue. Isaiah's message was one of judgment in history. Babylon invaded Judah about 175 years later. But the prophet also promised Israel's post-judgment restoration. Who in Isaiah's day would have imagined that this restoration would be exclusively post-final judgment? Who, for that matter, in Nineveh's, who, for that matter, in Nehemiah's day of restoration would have imagined it? The amillennial interpretation of the prophets is to assert that the texts dealing with negative sanctions refer to historical judgments on the nation of Israel, e.g. the Babylonian captivity. But the texts dealing with God's miraculous positive sanctions deal only with the discontinuous post-final judgment era. There is no continuity in history linking, one, the restoration of Israel, two, the church, and three, the coming era of millennial blessings. In short, God's corporate cursings are continuous in history, but his world-transforming blessings will be cosmic and discontinuous, beyond history. Those who heard the prophet's bad news were to fear God, but when they heard the message of miraculous social transformation, they were to pay no attention, except in a symbolic sense, a world beyond history. Nebuchadnezzar was real. Tears were real. But the possibility of future cultural transformation is merely symbolic. If this is true, then this theological conclusion is inescapable. Biblical social theory is also symbolic. Here is my point. Amillennialism cannot deal exegetically with God's positive corporate sanctions in New Covenant history. This is one of my major contentions in this book. God's positive corporate sanctions are said to relate primarily to sacred history, meaning the biblical narratives in the Old Covenant. They are past events, Aorist tense, completed. This could be called preterism for eschatological pessimists. The good news for society is past. But what about the possibility of a secondary application in New Covenant history of the good news of future corporate cultural transformation? For the amillennialist, there is no secondarily. There is only primarily. 
This presents a major problem for the development of amillennial social theory. Explicitly biblical, no humanism, and no neutral natural law. It makes it impossible. Why death simply cannot mean death. Hokema does not stop with his assertion that the tears of Isaiah 65.19 will be wiped away only in the post-resurrection world. He goes on. There is an old slogan, when you're in a hole, stop digging. Quote, in the light of the foregoing, I conclude that Isaiah in verse 20 of chapter 65 is picturing in figurative terms the fact that the inhabitants of the new earth will live incalculably long lives. End quote. Notice what he is doing. First, he denies that death actually refers to death. Second, he speaks of incalculably long lives in the new heaven and new earth in an, an odd prophetic way of saying eternal, death-free living. Professor Hokema is about to make a very slick interpretive move out of history and into eternity. His major problem is to get rid of the word sinner. There will not be any sinners dwelling in the eternal new heaven and new earth. If the new heaven and new earth refer exclusively to the post-judgment age, then sinners must be eliminated from the text. Dr. Hokema rises to the occasion. Unfortunately, his common sense does not rise with him. Quote, Since the word translated sinner in the last clause means someone who has missed the mark, I would again refer, prefer the NIV rendering. Quote, He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. End quote. It is not implied that there will be anyone on the new earth who will fail to attain a hundred years. End quote. How, pray tell, does someone not reach age 100? I would have thought there could only be one way. He dies first. But Hokema assures us this, this text in no way implies that anyone will fail to reach age 100. So there will be no weeping in Jerusalem, because sinners, who are not in fact sinners, but merely people who miss the mark, will not be dying before age 100, because the text in no way implies that anyone will die. For the child shall die means that no one will die. If this sounds suspiciously like a Christian science lay reader's explanation of John 11.14, Then Jesus said to them, plainly, Lazarus is dead, end quote. This is because the goal is the same, escaping the plain and also figurative meaning of the text. If death in this passage does not actually refer to death, then what was Isaiah's point? What message was he trying to convey? Why did he bring up the possibility of the death of people who missed the mark, if there will be neither death nor sin in that exclusively future, exclusively post-historical era? What has the language of death got to do with a sin-free missing of the mark? What has the verse got to do with anything if sin, death, and history are all spirited away? Denying a Future Covenantal Discontinuity None of his exegetical dancing does Dr. Hokema any good. He can, of course, interpret the text figuratively, but he cannot remove it from history. Isaiah's prophesied judgments against the nation of Israel took place in history. The amillennialist's exegetical problem with Isaiah 65 is history, not the prophet's possibly figurative use of language. I create, God said, the new heaven and the new earth are begun in history. Yes, this text can conceivably be translated will create, since Hebrew does not distinguish between the present and future tenses, and the NIV translators with an eye on the amillennial book buying public did so. No other major translation, Bible translation, does. When your eschatology rests heavily on a peculiar translation found only in the NIV, you are skating on thin ice. In any case, even if we accept the future tense, this could and does mean create in history. At the nation's return from Babylon, at the ascension of Jesus Christ, at the sending of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and at the fall of Jerusalem, I should add, in the millennium of blessings. It is a multi-stage process that culminates at the final judgment, but amillennialists insist that the new heaven and new earth begin only at the final judgment. Hokema makes it clear in his discussion of the new earth, which is exclusively post-resurrection, that the key issue is the denial of history, not the denial of hermeneutical literalism. Quote, Prophecies of this nature should be understood as descriptions, in figurative language to be sure, of the new earth which God will bring into existence after Christ comes again, a new earth which will last not just for a thousand years, but forever, end quote. The issue is post-historical fulfillment, not literalism. 
Quote, there will be a future fulfillment of these prophecies not in the millennium but on the new earth. Whether they are all to be literally fulfilled is an open question. End quote. What is a closed question is the question of historical fulfillment. There will be none. The issue under discussion is the possibility of a future historical discontinuity worldwide in which the Holy Spirit converts large numbers of people to saving faith. The issue is not extended lifespans as such. If modern science were to find a chemical or biological way to change the supposed internal time clock that governs the aging process in humans, and thereby extend the life expectancy of mankind, Dr. Hokuma would not regard this as the advent of the new earth. Neither would I. The issue is God's historical sanctions. The differentiation made by the general public between the moral quality of long lives lived by covenant keepers and covenant breakers. What he is rejecting is what postmillennialism affirms, a coming spiritual discontinuity in history that accompanies a cultural and even biological discontinuity. He predicts spiritual covenantal continuity in history, churls will continue to be called bountiful, no matter what covenant-breaking science may invent. I predict a spiritual covenantal discontinuity in history, increasingly bad times for churls, no matter what covenant-breaking science invents. The two views cannot be reconciled. They cannot both be correct. Anthony Hokuma has written the most comprehensive presentation of the Calvinist amillennial case. His book is the only full-scale English-language presentation of the amillennial position, certainly from the Dutch tradition, but probably in the history of the position. He grapples with Isaiah 65.20, a difficult passage to interpret from an amillennial viewpoint, not just difficult, impossible, unless you intend to embarrass yourself in public. No better proof exists of the impossibility of this task than Dr. Hokuma's valiant attempt. It was a theologically necessary but thankless task that his amillennial predecessors had preferred to skate around rather than a, a, skate around rather than across. Dr. Hokuma, a courageous man, skated as fast as he could, but fell through the ice anyway. He gets an A for effort, but a D for performance. I have done my best to expose Dr. Hokuma's exegesis of Isaiah 65:20 as little short of preposterous. If I have done my work well, his interpretation appears foolish. This is because it really is foolish. But Dr. Hokuma was no fool. Early in his career, he wrote the most tightly argued, theologically rigorous, fully documented study of the theologies of the four major cults that we have available. So his problem was not that he was an incompetent theologian. His problem was that his millennial view cannot be defended without the manufacture of silly interpretations of those passages that predict Christian victory in history. The reader needs to understand... His book is virtually the only recent Common Grace Amillennial study that devotes even one chapter to the question of the meaning of history in relation to Amillennial eschatology. The others steadfastly ignore it, with only one exception, H. Van Riesen's Society of the Future. But Van Riesen was neither an historian nor a theologian. Van Riesen's Vision This coming era of blessings will be marked by economic freedom, Men will keep the fruits of their labor. They will leave an inheritance to their children. Quote, and they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people, and mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble. For they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring with them. Isaiah 65, 21-23. There is a blessed earth, earthly inheritance ahead in history for God's covenant people. All this is denied by amillennial theologians, especially in the 20th century Dutch tradition. We can see this message of disinheritance in history in the writings of H. Van Riesen. Van Riesen was a professor of philosophy at the University of Technology at Delft in the Netherlands. His book, The Society of the Future, 1957, serves as a coherent introduction to amillennial social criticism. He was critical of the bureaucratic planned society of socialism. He understood the depersonalization of modern industrial life. He saw the breakdown of modern humanist ethics, philosophy, and confidence about the future. He saw that ethical neutrality leads to nihilism. 
but like premillennialist Francis Schaeffer, who also offered cogent criticisms without biblical alternatives, Van Riesen saw no hope. Why no hope? Quote, for Babylon will be the city of the end, end quote. How should we then live? On the one hand, aggressively. Quote, we should not try to escape from the world, but to work in it as a Christian should, end quote. But to do this, we theonomists hasten to add, Christians need more data on the should aspect of Christian living. We need specifics. He offers none. Biblical law is not even mentioned in his book. What he offers is a counsel of stoic despair. Quote, the normal situation for the community of Jesus is not to be influential and prosperous, but poor and oppressed. End quote. When he says normal, he means normative throughout history. In constructing this view of history, amillennialists see the sufferings of Job as normative, not the restoration and multiplication of Job's blessings after his time of suffering. Quote, so the Lord blessed the latter end of Job more than his beginning. End quote. Job 42.12a His post-suffering blessings were apparently random, having nothing fundamental to do with the overall spiritual message of the book of Job. In short, amillennialists imply the story of Job is not essentially covenantal. The blessings and cursings of history are not related to one's ethical behavior in history. At best, they were not very closely related to jo in Job's day and in the New Testament. They are not related in history in any predictable fashion. This view of Job is a denial of the biblical covenant's continuing authority in the New Testament era. Nevertheless, it has long been presented in the name of covenant theology. Today's Prosperity The second half of the 20th century has been a time of great prosperity in the West. This raises the old question of God's historical sanctions. How is it that spiritual rebellion seems to bring economic prosperity? Van Riesen's answer is much the same as best-selling dispensational author Dave Hunt in his Peace, Prosperity, and the Coming Holocaust, 1983. Modern prosperity is all a gigantic spiritual deception. Hunt says that this deception is being engineered by Satan through the New Age movement. I argue in Chapter 7 that unless Christians accept biblical covenantal standards of wealth and progress, there is a very real possibility that they could be deceived in this way. This is why it is so important for Christians to understand and accept the biblical covenant model. But Hunt, as a dispensationalist and an extreme pietist theologically, rejects biblical law. Thus, he also rejects the legitimacy of wealth, at least for those who do not live on paperback book royalties. The rejection of the legitimacy of wealth is an odd theological position for a man whose only formal training is accounting, which is perhaps the most crucial technical pillar of modern capitalism. Perhaps he had originally planned to specialize only in Christians' bankruptcy cases. Van Riesen, a more scholarly analyst than Mr. Hunt, says that this deception is a product of secularization. He warns, quote, While living in an oasis, we must guard against looking upon the oasis as a general condition, forgetting the desert. The danger lie lurking in a long period of prosperity for Christians is that they are apt to get secularized gradually without being aware of it and even that they are carried away by the spirit of the age. We are perhaps not oppressed because we no longer take offense. End quote. There is darkness coming. Quote, we should know that the time will come when our position will be entirely lost, but Christ shall nevertheless rule the world. End quote. The process is irreversible, he says. Quote, the history of Western culture is in the main a history of a Christian culture followed by a secularization increasing in extent and intensity. It is moving to a final catastrophe. End quote. Prosperity is said to be a spiritual oasis. It surely can be. This is the paradox of Deuteronomy 8. Wealth is both a positive and a negative sanction in history. But for Van Riesen, wealth is exclusively a negative corporate sanction. It is a spiritual desert. The Christian in whose hands wealth can be a positive sanction must regard the wealth around him as a sign of God's cultural disinheritance of the church's healing work in history. Then what of this proverb? The wealth of the sinner is laid up for the just. Proverbs 13.22b Quote, It only applies to individuals, not to societies, end quote, says the, the amillennialist. But God delivering the land of Canaan into the hands of the Israelites, disinheriting the Canaanites, but providing an inheritance to his people. 
quote, Old Testament, Old Testament, shouts the amillennialist. This is supposed to end the argument. It is the major offense of Christian Reconstructionism that its view of Old Testament law and God's historical sanctions keeps the argument alive. This offers hope to society, the hope of God's inheritance to his people in history. The amillennialists deeply resent this offer of hope. A Society Without Legitimate Hope Van Riesen offered no alternative, no plan of action, and no hope. He ended with this call to, to a stiff upper lip. Quote, Defeatism or passive resignation to our situation with all the risks attached to the latter only, only mean the neglect of our vocation. On the other hand, superficial optimism based on some favorable phenomena or on a distorted global picture of our situation would be dangerous. In this difficult time, it is essential for us to have a correct insight into our condition, an ardent faith in our calling irrespective of the results of our work, quiet determination on the right course towards the future, and critical reflection on anything presenting itself to us in this course." Having presented his chilling forecast of bad things to come, Van Riesen came back in 1960 to assure his Dutch-American readers that, quote, Christians are going to change the world. They have to urge mankind to follow God's will. But knowledge changes nothing. It is the believing heart that alters the world, end quote. Unfortunately for the Church, there will never be many of these believing hearts in history according to what amillennialism teaches. So precisely how will Christians change the world? Van Til said this Christian influence will only make non-Christians more aware of their own intellectual inconsistency, thereby bringing increasingly severe persecution against the Church. Van Riesen did not say how Christianity will change the world. He did not need to. The Society of the Future had said enough. When I was a teenager in a public high school, the boys' athletic dressing room had this motto painted on the wall. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. Van Riesen adopted something like this schoolboy's motto as a substitute for Christian social philosophy. This, quite frankly, has been amillennialism's tactic for at least half a millennium. Question. Wouldn't the wise person adopt a different version of the motto? Quote, when the going gets tough, the tough may get going, but the weak get out of the way. End quote. This has been the operational motto of Christians for well over a century. They have read and fully understood four generations of premillennial and amillennial dissertations and tracts, and they have acted accordingly. Whenever possible, they have bought themselves a hoped-for oasis, usually with a lot of debt, and they have then prayed to God to keep the desert sands outside its boundaries until they die. Nothing has shortened Christianity's time perspective more effectively than eschatological pessimism. Christian laymen are not fools. They have read the pessimillennialists' version of David and Goliath. Goliath defeats David, and they have concluded, Don't get into an unnecessary confrontation with Goliath. They are not naive. The pessimillennial theologians are naive, however. In their tenured academic security, they call Christian laymen to get into the battle. Let's you and Goliath fight, they call out to the potential Davids of the world. But all the Davids are at home, tending sheep. Only Saul's are in the battlefield. So the Saul's of the world put down the theologian's book, turn on the TV, and put a bag of popcorn into the microwave. They are a lot wiser than their spiritual counselors are. They are not interested in kamikaze tactics. The personal price is too high, and the cultural payoff is too low. Transhistorical Victory Chapter 42 of R. B. Kuyper's The The Glorious Body of Christ, Conqueror of the World, is filled with the language of victory. He writes, quote, Amazing as it may seem, the insignificant church is out to conquer the world. Not only is it striving to do this, it is succeeding. And surpassing, strange to say, not only is victory in sight for the church, it is a present reality. End quote. Surpassing strange indeed. The word succeeding indicates progress, but the words present reality give away the game. Only in the post-historical world will we see, in retrospect, the nature of this victory, a victory in disguise. He, he includes a subsection, the duty of conquest. He calls Christians to an earthly battle that his millennial view denies they can win, but he refuses to state this explicitly. He fools them with misleading language. He also includes another subsection, the reality of victory. He writes, quote, 
That the church will, in the end, overcome the world is a foregone conclusion, for it will share in the ultimate and complete triumph of Christ, its head. End quote. Notice the presence of the familiar amillennialist weasel word ultimate, meaning not in history. This is a devious way of admitting that the church in history will not overcome the world, and that any victory it will enjoy will be post-history, when the direct intervention of God interrupts history at the final judgment. The church in the amillennial framework has about as much to do with this final victory of Christ over the world of sin and corruption as a little old lady has in arresting a large gang of muggers while she is being beaten to a pulp at the moment when the police finally arrive. According to amillennialism, the church's role in Christ's victory is that of a helpless, impotent victim, whose only earthly hope is that a deliverer might arrive in the nick of time, meaning at the end of time. Her only hope is to be unexpectedly delivered overnight from the burdens of history, not delivered by means of a gospel-transformed history. The Deliberate Misuse of Language Kuiper's next sentence is even more telling. Quote, but scripture also teaches that the church's victory over the world is a present reality. End quote. Victory? Should we call amillennialism's vision of the church's future a vision of victory? Only if our task is to misuse language and confuse our readers. Kuiper, like all amillennialists, refused to offer a biblical theory of historical continuity, an explanation of how the church gets from its visible impotence in the present to the glorious victory of the future. The church's victory is non-historical in the present, and it will be post-historical in the future. Kuiper warned against the theology of Karl Barth, but his own view of church history, especially its future history, was essentially Barthian. Barth proclaimed two forms of history, a history of real-world events, which he called history, and Christ's world of hidden history, a transhistorical, non-rational encounter that cannot be revealed by or judged by the factual records of documents of history. For Barthians, the non-Christian reality of history does not call into question the meaning of man's encounter with Christ. Van Til recognized that Barth's view of history was the product of his Kantian apostate presuppositions. He recognized that Barth used the language of the Bible and Christian orthodoxy to confuse his Christian readers. Yet Kuiper did something analogous. He used the, the language of victory when discussing history. Like Barth, he did not mean history in the normal sense, cause and effect in temporal succession. Like Barth, he adopted a dialectical view of history. He differentiated between, one, the real historical world, where as time goes by you will get your Christian head kicked in by the reprobates, and two, a trans-historical world of your realized victory, which cannot be revealed by or judged by the factual historical reality of the church's increasingly visible defeat. Kuiper had hid the spiritual victory of the church safely outside of the grim reality of reprobate-dominated history, just as Barth hid each man's non-rational encounter with his Kantian Christ, outside of fact-based and fact-judged history. Kuiper proclaimed a symbolic world of non-historical victorialistic as a substitute for Barth's equally non-historical Geschicht. Understandably, this misuse of the language of victory is annoying to those of us who are really serious about developing a theory of Christian victory in history. Better Van Til's forthrightness, a theory of history that openly admits that Christians, like that little old lady, are going to get mugged, and mugged ever more frequently and ever more viciously. He did not sugarcoat his eschatological poison pill. False Packaging What I resent is that these Calvinistic amillennial theologians use the language of victory to describe the agony of defeat. This is misleading. I contend that it is also deliberate. They should openly proclaim in chapter 1 of their books the inevitable God-predestined defeat of Christianity in history. They should hasten to remind their readers that the gospel of Christ will fail to redeem this visible world of temporal cause and effect, or significantly restrain its evil or protect Christians and especially their heirs from an inevitably triumphant tyranny. They should tell their readers well in advance, quote, I am calling you to a life of frustration, of shattered hopes and visible defeat, and your children will have it even worse, end quote. Most important of all, they should then present the exegetical case for amillennialism. 
They categorically refuse to do this. Instead, they adopt the optimistic language of victory that only postmillennialists can legitimately use, and then they shave all historical meaning away from it. Amillennialists know that eschatological pessimism can be sold successfully in the Protestant West, as distinguished from the mystical Eastern Orthodox tradition of submission to defeat and suffering in history, only when it can be tied to a death-free escape hatch out of history, i.e., the pre-tribulation rapture of the saints, which they reject. So they announce victory in the large print and then incrementally substitute historical defeat in the fine print. This is why Calvinistic amillennialism is fraudulent. No softer words will do. It is fraudulent not because this eschatology is incorrect, which would simply be a matter of intellectual error, but because its packaging is stolen. Amillennialists too often wrap their psychological poison pill of historical and cultural pessimism in the bright colors of postmillennial optimism. They use bright wrapping paper for their culturally empty boxes. If they were to adopt a similar tactic on Christmas morning with their children, they would destroy their children's trust in them and their bright promises about the future. Yet they feel no compunction against doing this to trusting laymen who do not recognize the rhetorical impulse of this deception. This practice is a great disservice to faithful, trusting Christian laymen. Reaping what you sow Fortunately, this strategy of deception is self-defeating. The readers eventually learn to ignore the language of victory. Proclaiming historical defeat in the fine print, amillennialists reap the inevitable institutional fruits. They struggle all their lives to keep their shrinking, ghetto churches afloat, silently sending their children off to their Christian day schools, maybe, and then to their little denominational colleges, which are increasingly liberal, both theologically and politically. After all, the laymen know that such grim developments are inevitable. Why waste resources fighting the eschatologically inevitable? Hunker down. Laymen are permitted by the church's authorities only to watch silently from the institutional sidelines while their own children reject everything they themselves hold dear. And if their children do return to the church, it is all too often because they know that the next generation of pastors, their collegiate peers, will soon begin to impose the familiar campus liberalism in the denomination's pulpits, and if not liberalism, then at least the worldview of Christianity's cultural irrelevance. There is continuity in history. It will either be a continuity of victory or a continuity of defeat. It will end either with the return of Jesus to set up an earthly kingdom, premillennialism, or at the end of time, amillennialism and postmillennialism. Until the coming cosmic discontinuity, both the premillennialists and the amillennialists insist, Christians can expect progressively bad news progressively tyrannical conditions, and progressively less influence. Premillennialists at least allow a thousand years of earthly kingdom relief. Amillennialists do not. Amillennialists are, as Rush Dooney once remarked, premillennialists without earthly hope. As I wrote in Political Polytheism, quote, Let us understand the nature of amillennialism. Insofar as eschatology refers to human history, amillennialism is postmillennialism for covenant breakers covenant breakers or take dominion progressively in history. Dispensational premillennialism is also postmillennialism for covenant breakers, insofar as eschatology refers to the Christians who live and labor prior to Jesus' physical second coming, the so-called church age. All their good works will be swallowed up during the Great Tribulation period, either immediately before Jesus returns, the post-tribulation position, or in the seven-year period which follows the so-called secret rapture pre-tribulationalism. Postmillennialism is an inescapable concept. It is never a question of cultural triumph versus no cultural triumph prior to Jesus' second coming. It is a question of which kingdom's cultural triumph. End quote. The amillennialist has identified the victorious kingdom in history, Satan's. What, then, is the rational response of the Christian if this amillennial vision is correct? What is to be done? Defeatism active or passive. The optimistic vision of covenantal victory that is found in the book of Isaiah is not taken seriously by common grace amillennialists. They see a continuous expansion of Satan's kingdom, i.e. civilization, in history. Amillennialism's view of history is clear. Quote, things are going to get a lot worse before they get worse. End quote. Van Riesen is consistent in this respect. 
he offers Christians no earthly hope for positive cultural transformation. On the one hand, Dutch common grace amillennialists insist that there are uniquely Christian ways to explain the world and even to suggest to the lost as biblical alternatives. On the other hand, because they deny the continuing validity of Old Testament law, they never get around to describing precisely what these specific reforms are, or how these reforms are uniquely biblical, i.e., how the Bible compels us morally to accept them. The implications of this outlook for the construction of a Christian social theory are devastating. The common grace amillennialists deny God's covenant-guaranteed sanctions in history. Worse, they offer a perverse view of these sanctions. God rewards covenant-breakers and penalizes covenant-keepers. There is no neutrality in history. Historical sanctions are an inescapable concept. The question is, who imposes them? Christ or Satan? But the common grace amillennialists steadfastly refuse to admit plainly what they are teaching. Instead, they frequently camouflage their discussion of God's kingdom with the language of postmillennial optimism. This is false packaging, and it has gone on throughout the 20th century. Despite this false packaging, the basic message of amillennial theology has penetrated the thinking of the layman. They have retreated into their ecclesiastical and cultural ghettos. Again, I need to cite Christian Reformed Church Minister and President of Westminster Seminary, R.B. Kuyper, who warned his fellow Dutch Americans, quote, By this time it has become trite to say that we must come out of our isolation. Far too often, let it be said again, we hide our light under a bushel instead of placing it high on a candlestick. We seem not to realize fully that as the salt of the earth, we can perform our functions of seasoning and preserving only through contact, end quote. But nothing has changed, except that the leadership of the denomination has grown far more liberal than it was in Kuiper's day. The Christian Reformed Church still, still speaks with a Dutch accent. So does the Protestant Reformed Church. Despite their surface differences and old antagonisms over the common grace issue, they share a historically defeatist millennial outlook. Neither side has produced a distinctly self-consciously Christian social theory. The Protestant Reformed Church never was interested in the project, while their Christian Reformed Church is now too liberal to care. Flickering Lights Under a Bushel Van Riesen writes, quote, Defeatism or passive resignation to our situation with all the risks attached to the latter only mean the neglect of our vocation, end quote. He is correct. People who do not believe that a Christian civilization will ever become a city on a hill, a light to the nations, and who recognize that there are extreme risks in trying to build such a city, are unlikely to accept those risks. Why bother? It is safer to keep your light under a bushel. This is why pessimillennialism has inevitable consequences for the development of Christian social theory. It lowers the perceived benefits of developing a distinctly Bible-based approach to social theory by denying that such a theory can ever be applied in culture. It preaches a system of historical continuity that proclaims the expansion of Satan's kingdom and the cultural defeat of Christ's. Understand, a failure to expand is a defeat. There is no neutrality. Satan's kingdom automatically triumphs in history if Christ's does not expand. Since Satan is holding all of the yet unconquered territory by Adam's default, pessimillennialism argues implicitly that God brings positive sanctions to covenant breakers and negative sanctions to covenant keepers. And then, to ice the cake, it denies or ignores the case laws of the Old Testament. It rejects Christianity's tools of dominion. The best thing you can say about an outlook like this is that eventually it self-destructs. Attrition erodes the membership of any church that calls for commitment to developing a Christian worldview, yet also denies the very possibility of accomplishing this very difficult task. Premillennialism at least baptizes its open philosophy of cultural retreat, and it ignores the whole question of social theory. Common grace amillennialism produces either guilt, no biblical answers, or liberalism, false answers. Why has this come about? Because amillennialists do not understand biblical prophecy. They do not understand the ethically conditional character of biblical prophecy and the Holy Spirit's role in history. They have not seen that the Holy Spirit empowers God's covenant people progressively to meet the demands of God's law and therefore enables them to gain the positive blessings of God in history. The Ethically Conditional Character of Biblical Prophecy 
Jonah was told by God to announce this prophetic message to the city of Nineveh. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah 3, 4b. The people believed him, and the result was Nineveh's national repentance. Quote, so the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published through, through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from his evil way, and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent, and turn away from his fierce anger, that we perish not? And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil, that he had said he would do unto them, and he did it not. Jonah 3, 5-10 the king of Nineveh understood biblical prophecy better than most modern Christians do. He recognized that God might be willing to reverse his judgment and not impose negative sanctions in history, even though he had said that he would. The king recognized that God's intent was ethical, to stop the sinning. God could do this either by bringing negative sanctions or by enabling the recipients of the message to reform their lives. Nineveh chose the latter approach. The city was spared. Like pre-tribulational dispensationalists who are ready, if not willing, to see two-thirds of the Jews of Israel exterminated, see it safely from heaven, of course, after the rapture, and who rejoice at front-page headlines filled with bad news because this tells us that Jesus is coming soon, Jonah was depressed when the prophesied bad news turned into good news. Quote, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. End quote, Jonah 4.1. He had expected God to smash his enemies in 40 days, but God had smashed them in an ethically relevant sense. He had made them into something better, if not covenant keepers, then at least covenant observers. The If Clause When God prophesies destruction against a person or nation, there is always an If Clause in the prophecy. If you do not repent, God promises negative sanctions in history will be brought against you, but always present is a way of escape. If you cease from your sins, you will avoid these negative sanctions. Quote, there hath no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. End quote. 1 Corinthians 10.13 It is this conditional nature of all prophecy that makes the outcome contingent on the ethical decisions of men. The offer of the gospel is always well-intentioned. God may choose not to enable men to accept it, and without this positive sanction, they will not accept it. Quote, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. End quote. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But the offer is always legitimate. It is not a trick. Because neither the prophet nor the recipient of the threat knows in advance what the response of the recipient will be, Neither knows for sure what God's response will be. The threat of negative sanctions is not the unconditional prediction of negative sanctions. Thus, whenever God prophesies external negative sanctions against a person or a corporate group, the interpreter of prophecy should have the if clause in the back of his mind. The intent of the threat is to induce repentance. God's prophecies are always ethical in intent. Because of this ethical character of biblical prophecy, there is no sure thing in prophetic matters when they relate to negative sanctions in history. The presence of ethical conditionality removes from such prophecies the category of inevitability. The threatened sanctions are inevitable if the target of the threat persists in sin, but the target may repent. This is what God, in principle, always prefers. Quote, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. End quote. 2 Peter 3.9 In short, biblical prophecy does not assume an inevitable continuation of existing ethical trends. It only assumes a certain outcome if these existing trends continue. Trend Tending The Illusion of Inevitability 
Van Riesen's vision of the future is a grim one. It partakes of the same gloom as do modern humanism's pessimistic utopian novels, which he identifies as signs of the end of civilization. He looks around him, and he does not like what he sees. He then extrapolates from 1957 into the future, a vision of the future governed by his unstated amillennial presuppositions. The question is, are these trends inevitable, i.e. predestined? Robert Nisbet is a conservative sociologist and historian, more historian by gift and choice than sociologist. How else could I have survived his graduate seminars? He has, also, he has seen what has happened to many prophecies in history. He has also seen the character of modern social science prophecies today. There is not much difference, he concludes. They seldom come true. When they do, it is because the prophet has had a kind of brilliant insight into the present, not the future. The successes are based on imagination, not computer printouts. Commenting on a slew of Year 2000 books published in the mid-1960s, a tradition going back to a communist pornographer, Restif de la Breton, just prior to the French Revolution, he observed that these books were not really about changes in the future. They were about the writer's observations in the present. Quote, But change is not, alas, what these books are predicting. They are only extrapolating present rates, many of which remind one of a mad psychologist predicting giants at age 20 on the basis of growth rates at age 10. End quote. Quote, Only the unwary will be deluded into thinking that any of this is, in the fact, the future. There have been statistician soothsayers, I am certain, in all ages. In ancient Egypt, there must have been such individuals to compute the number of pyramids that there would be on the earth 2,000 years later, before that someone to compute the number of pterodactyls, after that to compute the number of knights on horseback, wayfarer chapels, not to mention witches. It is a great game for the statistically minded, like predictions year by year in the Pentagon of that infinitesimally small chunk of time represented by our engagement in Vietnam, and, as I say, I do not for the moment disparage it. It tells us about the present. End quote. Whenever we see such prophecies of the future, which are in fact observations about the present, we should beware. His warning should always be in the back of our minds. Quote, Let us be clear on two points. One, events do not marry and have little events that grow into big events, which turn in turn marry and have little events, etc. Two, small social changes do not accumulate directionally and continuously to become big social changes. End quote. Society must contend with such future factors as the random event, the maniac, the prophet, and the genius. Quote, we have absolutely no way of escaping them. The future predictors that don't suggest that we can avoid or escape them, or ever be able to predict or forecast them. What the future predictors, the change analysts, and trend tenders say in effect is that with the aid of institute resources, computers, linear programming, etc., they will deal with the kinds of change that are not the consequence of the random event, the genius, the maniac, and the prophet, to which I can only say, there really aren't any, not any worth looking at anyhow. End quote. With respect to trend-tending, Van Riesen's Society of the Future bears a striking resemblance to Jacques Ellul's The Technological Society, which was published in France about five years after The Society of the Future appeared in the Netherlands. Elol's book is more prolix, more eloquent, but essentially the same in terms of both message and content. We are heading toward the bureaucratic cage. This had been Max Weber's message a half-century earlier. Elol stressed the dark side of the technological imperative. Quote, if it can be done, it will be done. End quote. Van Riesen emphasized the dark side of man's character. Neither of them offered a way out of mankind's supposed dilemma. The trends are irreversibly fixed. But what of the discontinuous, continuous event? What of a Luther, a Calvin, a Wesley, or even an Abraham Kuyper? More important, what of a cultural transforming move by the Holy Spirit in the future? What of God's positive and negative sanctions in history? When his mercy runs out for covenant breakers, what then? Will this somehow thwart the Church's Great Commission? Amillennialism denies that such a culture-transforming positive work of the Holy Spirit will happen. This assertion is basic to amillennial eschatology. 
Similarly, the common grace amillennialist denies that God will bring comprehensive negative sanctions against the present humanist world order, even though he may from time to time smash a particular evildoer, Hitler being the number one example, especially for Dutchmen. Amillennialism is an eschatology of downward continuity, and the continuity it affirms is based on a denial of the significance of any meaningful historical discontinuity that might reverse the downward drift of civilization into the cultural void. This is also true of the Kingdom New Random News School, since there is no kingdom neutrality in history. It denies a postmillennial spiritual discontinuity from outside of history that would reverse this present downward drift, as well as a premillennial physical discontinuity from outside of history, the bodily return of Christ to set up a millennial kingdom. Amillennialism is inherently bad news. Conclusion Amillennialism partakes of the Jonah fallacy, a systematic ignoring of, one, the conditional ethical character of all biblical prophecy, and two, the cultural work of the Holy Spirit. It therefore takes a particular approach to the if clause in all biblical prophecy. Whenever amillennial expositors see prophecies of Christianity's cultural victory, e.g., Psalm 2, Psalm 110, Isaiah 32, Jeremiah 32, they say to themselves, These happy prophecies are ethically conditional. Men will fall into sin. The continuity of salvation cannot be maintained across generations, so cultural victory cannot be maintained. Christians cannot hold conquered territory. Whenever they see prophecies of the afflictions of the church in history, they think, These are not conditional prophecies. The cultural triumph of Satan is sure. The real question is this. Will the work of the Holy Spirit enable covenant keepers to fulfill the bulk of the dominion covenant in history? In other words, will he enable his covenant people progressively to meet the bulk of the covenant's ethical conditions? The amillennialist categorically denies that he will, while the postmillennialist categorically insists that he will. There is no way to reconcile these rival views of covenantal history. One of these positions is wrong. This is why any assertion of an ideal of eschatological neutrality for the Church's creeds and standards is as naive as any other form of doctrinal neutrality. Over time, the Church will come to more rigorous standards. The postmillennialist is confident that these will be progressively accurate standards. In contrast, the amillennialist thinks that history is inherently ambiguous, and therefore eschatology should be too. If history is progressive, eschatology must reflect this. If it is ambiguous, then eschatology must reflect this. So the amillennialist wants eschatological neutrality, which is another way of saying that he wants amillennialism dominant in the church. Eschatological ambiguity. Eschatological ambiguity means, institutionally, the triumph of amillennialism. Eschatological liberty is eschatological pluralism. But there is no neutrality. Any assertion of neutrality is a cover for a hidden agenda perhaps hidden even to those who promote neutrality. The debate is over the Holy Spirit and what God has said that he will achieve in history. The amillennialist says that the Holy Spirit has been sent by the Father and the Son to achieve very little culturally in history through his people, the doctrine of judicial representation, point two of the biblical covenant model. The postmillennialist says that God has a very broad definition of what constitutes salvation and restoration, and that his spirit will achieve a great deal in history through his people. As an incentive for the development of biblical social theory, postmillennialism's vision of the comprehensive work of the Holy Spirit in history cannot be matched within Christian circles. This assertion will be denied by pessimillennialists. A verbal denial is easy. Proving its accuracy will be more difficult. But the most important form of any such denial is to be able to point to an existing body of social theory that has been developed self-consciously in terms of one's eschatology. If this is missing, the public denials will be far less impressive. Denials are cheap. Writing comprehensive social theory isn't. Second, amillennialists indulge in the trend-tending fallacy of the humanist social scientists whom they challenge theologically. They see Satan's kingdom dominating today's world and they extrapolate from the present. Any extrapolation from the present, whether downward or random, spells defeat for Christ's visible institutional kingdom in history. Defeat, 
not victorious. There is no neutrality. Amillennial social commentators are spiritually blinded by their efforts of their trend tending. Their view of linear history is linear downward toward the cultural void. Therefore, they believe that the only thing that can save God's church in history is either, one, an immediate and permanent ceasefire agreement with the enemy, cultural and political pluralism, or else, two, Christ's second coming. Amillennial theologians would do well to follow the example of the king of Nineveh. He believed in the ethical conditionality of God's prophecies and responded accordingly. It can happen again in history. God is sovereign, not covenant-breaking man. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.